0: This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank.
1: Hello, this is Mark Byers. I I am a CPA. I do have my MBA, my CMA, and I sit on two AICPA national committees. Welcome to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. I am humbled to be here and hopefully
0: I'll make a difference in your lives today. This is episode 408.
2: Privately held and closely held companies are not in the business of maximizing the bottom line to pay a lot of taxes. So there's a lot of things that go on in privately held companies uh, that are different. They may have a wife on the payroll who never sees the front door and a variety of other things that take place that are rather typical in a lot of privately
3: held businesses.
1: M&A world is not the world for inexperience. Enterprise is EBITDA times market multiple. So anytime you make a mistake uh, in uh, driving negative cash flow, it's really that market of multiple uh, is applied against that mistake, which can yield to a huge amount of money.
3: For me in this situation where Acquisitions are so important, we're really looking for those areas, I'll call them the financial ops part of our business, to really be a contributor to the efficiency that we're able to get out of doing acquisitions.
0: From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. Over time, we have shared with you the thinking of many M&A-minded CFOs, and today we thought we'd share three of our most thought-provoking guests when it comes to the M&A realm. We'll be featuring two CFOs and one investment banker. Their thoughts... After these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. Mark Byersmith has served in multiple CFO roles over the years, When he joined us last, he was CFO of Ariel Investments, a holding company with 19 subsidiaries in the real estate development space. During the course of his career, he closed over 73 M&A transactions, with financings reaching past $3.6 billion in both the public and private markets. We're pleased to open this episode with the M&A Insights of Mark Byersmith. Here's Mark.
1: I think one of the strategic advantages that our audience has in the business world was taught to us by Warren Buffett. Uh, He was once asked, if he could do anything over again, what would he do differently? And his answer was to study the language of business, which is accounting. Because it, the more you know that language, the more you know business. And let me give you a, a wow moment uh, in, with that lesson. I was involved in a transaction. And um, the way transactions typically work academically, if, if it's set up correctly, is you have the purchase price, which is subsequently adjusted after closing for what is called a purchase price adjustment designed to set the working capital ratio correctly for the ongoing enterprise to avoid the seller making a run on cash and diluting the working capital. The way that's managed in the transaction is through what is called a purchase price adjustment. More a colloquial term is the PPA. Well, in one transaction, um, because of the understanding of current assets and current liabilities and what that means, uh, technically, I was able to bring to the transaction a $10.2 million adjustment uh, post-closing. Uh, that was a material part of the uh, actual sale proceeds that were turned over. And what that did, ultimately, is drive arbitrage into the transaction and set the uh, current ratio uh, at a good level and then also give us that extra bump to allow the operating team to run the transaction correctly. Mr. Jack Kent Cooke, who most of your audience would know as the former owner of the LA Daily Times, the Washington Redskins, um, he was by far uh, the greatest M&A person that I have ever ran across. Um he had a situation where he was negotiating with us and we were at the firm level, he was selling uh cooked media to us. And his transaction uh negotiating skill was something that I've never forgot. Um, the first and foremost lesson is the importance of fatigue to the transaction. Um, what you try to do is wear down uh the buyer of your assets so such that that they just say yes at some point. <laughs> because they have so much emotional and financial investment into the transaction um, that they're weary, and they just want to get this behind them. And Jack was an expert. Um, I remember on Christmas Eve, he flew our firm down to negotiate. As soon as we got there, he sent us home. Uh, we flew back to San Francisco. Um, the transaction was taking place in Los Angeles. As soon as we got back to the car, the car phone back then, uh, that's what you had, a car phone. Uh, the, the, the phone was ringing, and he said he had second thoughts and advised us back. Um, now, by this time, it's Christmas Eve at 7 o'clock at night, and the wife and children are expecting you at home. They were not happy. Uh, we did fly back due to the importance of our firm uh, needing this and needing the fees associated with it. And ultimately, Jack won, and he did a very good job getting that deal uh, solidified. Uh, we went on to have a very good relationship and did well with him. Uh, but that was an important lesson that there's more to an M&A transaction than just the finance. Uh, to optimize an M&A transaction, you need to buy right, run right, and sell right. Uh, our audience today would be have an emphasis in the buy right area. And the successful uh, person in that area is going to create arbitrage at the point of the buy. Now, what that means is um, they would want to buy at $100 and the next day bring back to their company a transaction worth $120. Uh, that $20 difference is what we call arbitrage. The importance of that for the financial folks in our audience is that creates slack uh, for the operating team to have a learning curve. Uh, as they bring on the new company, they're going to make mistakes. And you want to have enough arbitrage to allow that to occur and still have a viable transaction at the point of selling that entity. The first thing is to realize that the M&A world is not the world for inexperience. Um, It's not for the CFO's team to go out and do an M&A transaction. They should clearly hire experts in the field. Uh, If you don't, you're going to be beat. And there's a lot of money at stake. What do we mean by that? Well, uh, as your audience knows, enterprise is EBITDA times market multiple. So anytime you make a mistake uh, in driving negative cash flow, it's really that market of multiple uh, is applied against that mistake, which can yield to a huge amount of money. The second lesson is to take that formula and try to improve upon it during the run right stage it is very important that the operating cash flow for that transaction grow during the course of ownership. Uh, Let me give you a classic example. Um, When my employees might come into my office and they ask for a $1,000 raise, well, it's really not a $1,000 raise. Uh, The impact on our company is a $1,000 times a multiplier. For instance, smokestack industries would have a multiplier these days between four and a half and six. So that thousand dollar raise is really anywhere from forty-five hundred to six thousand dollar raise as its impact in the enterprise. Um, It is very important that during the exercise, that the CFO watch that OCF and make sure it grows.
0: I would argue few finance leaders have articulated the vision behind their M&A strategy, as well as Jack Walsh, CFO of Aptian, a software technology company that specializes in industry-specific cloud-based ERP and supply chain solutions. One could make the argument that Aptian's competitive edge today is not software development but it's MA strategy. And it's interesting, uh, when Walsh listed his favorite metrics for us a while back, uh, they, they fell into two buckets. One was the bucket of choice for most all cloud CFOs, and that is all measures related to the customer, beginning with customer retention and growing of uh, existing customer relationships. But the second bucket, were measures related to the business case of Aptian's acquisitions and uh, whether they were achieving uh, the desired cost synergies. And uh, you want to make note of the careful emphasis Walsh places on the fact that Aptian is not just looking to measure what costs are being taken out, uh, but it's trying to measure how Aptian's best practices are being adopted. Here's Jack Walsh.
3: If you're running a software business and you see your marketplace moving in the direction of the cloud, a lot of these guys, if you're running a 10 to $15 million revenue stream business, you don't have the investment capacity. uh, to to drive that kind of cloud migration with any speed. And arguably, as that starts to pick up in our space, that creates an opportunity for us because God knows we have the resources and the ability to invest. And we've obviously done this before, so we know what it takes to do these things. And so that could create actually an additional opportunity for us on the acquisition side from a founder figuring out that he's about to get eclipsed in the next five years if he doesn't move aggressively and is a little hesitant about making that kind of investment as opposed to cashing out and letting somebody else who's more experienced handle it. So on the acquisition front, we certainly set targets internally for how many acquisitions that we want to do every year. But given my experience in the past with acquisitions, I'm certainly a believer that with all due respect to the corporate development people and the M&A people that are doing the deals, the harder part of the acquisition is actually integrating it properly and making sure that you get returns out of those, those investments that you're making um, as you ex- expected when you built the business case. So when we build business cases here, uh, we, we build almost exclusively those cases around realization of cost synergies Rather than revenue synergies, which is not to say there aren't revenue synergies from these acquisitions. We just don't bake them into our business cases as the foundation for the return on investment. And from my experience, I'd seen when you build it around revenue, that's a much riskier proposition and much harder to execute against as opposed to cost synergies. And then on the cost synergy side, we've got a really a team of people in place today in my organization and throughout the company that are focused on uh, bringing what is increasingly our best practices around acquisition integration to the table and making sure that we do each one to the best of our ability and, and realize those synergies that we built into the business case. And I want to emphasize, it's not just about taking out costs. It's about applying best practices to make sure that in development, in sales and marketing, in finance, in the back office, that we're, we're doing things the best way as opposed to sustaining past um, um, approaches that that may have been suboptimal. And we bring our systems and infrastructure to the table so we can monitor the performance of the business. And then we bring in um, our leadership, and we'll target uh, acquired leadership to run those businesses in a more effective way going into the future. So. It's, going back to your original question, it's monitoring the bookings performance on the core business, the organic business, and then it's monitoring our acquisition integration performance to make sure we're achieving the the returns on those investments we wanted by bringing best practices and efficiencies um, to the table that we had built into the business case. Those are really the two key criteria that we we track. So we've done 11 in the last, um, call it two, two and a half years, um and I would expect that we would continue at that pace, if not accelerate it. Um, simply because we're we're comfortable and confident that we we've got a, a process and a mechanism in place to do these things effectively. As I mentioned before, we've got almost an endless supply of opportunities, so we're we're not struggling to find those opportunities. In most cases, we find them by investment bankers. Um, who we've established a whole network of small and mid-sized and, and large and investment bankers to bring us these opportunities. So by the time it gets to us, the the seller has pretty much decided that he or she wants to sell the business and then is typically going to be looking to move on either to some other pursuit or to retire in many cases. And so um, that that's where I, I see us going. It's fair to say anything in the five to fifty million dollars range is going to be is going to be of interest to us.
0: Thought Leader listeners, our next M&A Thought Leader is an investment banker who shares what he believes every CFO needs to know when it comes to M&A. After these words from our sponsor. You want smart? of year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. We thought we'd now share an investment banker's point of view on what makes a successful deal. David Mahmud founded and built Allegiance Capital of Dallas, Texas, It's an M&A investment firm that's been focused on the midsize, privately held market since 1998. David shared some wonderful insights with us a while back when it comes to uh, selling a a family-owned company or a privately held firm. Without question, whatever David shares has value. Here he is.
2: Let me make this point. Privately held and closely held companies are not in the business of maximizing the bottom line to pay a lot of taxes. The net result is they spend a lot of time, many times over 20, 30 years, mitigating the effect of the bottom line. But when you go to sell a company, you want to maximize the bottom line. So I'm in a circumstance many times uh, working on what I call addbacks to really help people uh, maximize the return when they get ready to sell. So there's a lot of things that go on in privately held companies uh, that are different. They may have a wife on the payroll who never sees the front door and a variety of other things that take place that are rather typical in a lot of privately held businesses. Well, I tell my bankers here that, you know, most of them are really very astute on the financial and analytical side. They're well-trained. They went to colleges, most of them uh, advanced degrees. But I always forewarn them that uh, a degree in psychology is necessary when you're working in the lower middle market (laughs) and middle market because you're working with – Owners, entrepreneurs, families, functional and dysfunctional. And I laughily tell them I'm still waiting for the first functional family. Anytime you have more than two owners or a few family members in a the room, there's different uh, ideas, beliefs, requirements, and needs, generational differences. So there's a wide variety of things going on. And I do something with our bankers to help them become more effective and handle these uh, problems. Uh, all of my bankers, every single person, go through social styles. They develop an appreciation for the difference between analytic personalities, driving, amiable, and expressive. I teach them nonverbal communication so they pick up cues. Someone may be sitting there rather quiet, but they're not agreeing with what the elder brother is saying, for example. So we work very hard in sitting down with people on an individual basis and asking them what I call magic wand questions like, uh, what would you really like to do with the rest of your life? What is, you know, what are you looking for? What do you want to come out of this sale? And somebody might say, well, you know, my dad and my brother really want to sell, but I'm not interested. I want to stay with the company. I like this business. So structuring a deal around the needs of the key members of the family are really important. And if we know and understand what those family needs and requirements are on an individual basis, we can help structure a deal more successfully. Um uh, you know, if the majority of shareholders decide it's going to sell, the company is going to sell. On the other hand, there is things that you can do as the investment banker to manage a process, lead the process, and see that individual people's needs and requirements are satisfied in organizing and structuring the transaction. I've had partners who were in uh, a circumstance where they couldn't agree on the time of day. I had to deal with them uh, by separating them and that type of thing. It makes a transaction extremely difficult uh, when there is uh, uh, those types of personality problems where there is disunity. Uh, I find it particularly in family corporations where several family members are involved, You know, dad's at a point he'd like to take some cash out of the company. Mom liked to take some cash out of the company. Retire, they'd like to see the kids play a prominent role. You know, the senior son would rather have the folks die and inherit the business. Uh, There's some real interesting dynamics that come on out. And uh, I'm not in the business of taking on Mission Impossibles. So I look for uh, families And I will share with them many times, you need to sit down and decide, as a family, what's in your own best self-interest. I have a company right now that uh, there are two partners, each own 50%. One is probably 20 years older than the other. The older guy wants to sell, the younger guy doesn't. And I can't bridge that gap for them. You know, I'm not going to sell just 50% of the business. So they've got to get together and decide what is the best course of action. I told them I'd be happy to raise money for the younger partner to buy out the senior partner. There are a variety of things we can do, but the senior partner has been making the decisions for many years because he is a senior partner, he brought in the younger guy, but now they're at a crossroads. And they have to sit down and agree on the best course of action. You know, I don't have any magic wands. I can sell the business, but uh, uh, if uh, uh, the people end up in what I will call uh, destructive behavior, it's not going to help sell the business, maximize the price. And, you know, business owners are walking around between their two ears with something called institutional memory. Uh, it's highly valuable to the next owner. He doesn't want people to be mad walking out the door uh, doing dumb things. So... Uh, um, It's dealing with people. It's not always fun. It uh, can add a lot of work to the process. And sometimes it can be at the point where it just isn't worth the time and effort to try and uh, play psychiatrist or psychologist and solve those types of problems. Many times uh, uh, when people get ready to sell their company, uh, they're surprised at the fact the bar has been raised uh, by buyers today. You know, I can remember when the big thing was, you know, we got to get the financial statements audited. Today you have quality of earnings requirements and other things. So the net result is is that the bar has been raised considerably. The due diligence is, uh, shall we say, over the years improved and refined and uh, uh, taken to a much higher level. Uh, no buyer wants to make a mistake, and the net result is, is their due diligence is stretched out by a considerable degree. Uh, I mean, I can remember selling a company one time. I sold it in six weeks, you know. Today, I'm darn lucky if I can get a deal done in six to nine months. So a large part of that time, a typical acquirer will look for 90 days, three months today, just to do his due diligence and satisfy himself. Uh, as a result when we get in when we see that the books are poorly kept it's not uh, at a level that uh, would be acceptable one of the other things we tell uh, uh, our sellers also is that if you can't respond quickly to due diligence questions if you don't have the information readily available you're not going to look like you're very well managed organized or run so Many times before we take a company to market, we get it organized, cleaned up, get the audit trails in place, and we hire companies that have, in effect, or rent a CFO to come on in, and I have a rather significant uh, oil field service company. I had uh, over $100 million in revenue, um, extremely profitable, seven different divisions, Uh, I've had a -a rent-a-CFO in there for several months because while they had more than a bookkeeper, the person was overwhelmed with all of the requirements, all of the work, all of the needs uh, that would come with an acquire. So putting somebody in there on a temporary basis is really important. And many times we bring people in, and uh, they're of a much higher caliber, better educated have more background and experience, and the net result is is the companies end up hiring them on a permanent basis.